0: Jesus, what a privilege and honor to sing that you love us so much that you hold us fast forever. God, we want to be able to sing that truth. And we're thankful to be able to sing that truth because we know it is true. John 10, no one, no one will snatch us out of your hand. No one will snatch us out of the Father's hand. Romans 8 nothing will separate us from the love of Christ, not even persecution, not even death. You will most certainly hold us fast. You are great, and we can sing of your greatness, and then we see that greatness applied. No one will take us away. Thank you for loving us so much. Lord, we come to a text this morning that we all need to hear. Would you impress it upon our souls, our hearts? Make it compelling to us. Help me to be clear and and concise. Help us to be engaged with this text. Let it change our lives. Lord, we can labor in singing and we can labor in prayer and we can labor in in preaching, but if You do not apply the truth of Your Word to our hearts through Your Spirit, then all of this is in vain. We, We plead with You to apply this passage of Scripture. That the lost would be saved, And that we, your children, would live accurately in light of what it has to say. Thank you, Lord, for loving us again and holding us so fast. For caring so much about us to to die on the cross for us and then secure our eternity with you. What great assurance we have. Again, bless this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you, if you would, to take your Bible and open it to Luke chapter 17. The Gospel of Luke chapter 17 this morning. Looking at a good chunk of Scripture finishing out this chapter. We'll be in verse 20 through verse 37. Like I said, the end of the chapter coming to the subject matter of the kingdom of God. And your Bible heading might have what my Bible heading has. It says, the coming of the kingdom. And that's a rather accurate depiction of what this text is. It's a unique text of Scripture. It's going to deal with the present reality of the kingdom and then also the future reality of the kingdom. And the primary thrust of the passage, the majority of it is focused on the future aspects of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God being all that encompasses the rule and reign and authority and presence and power and glory of God. And the people during Jesus' time, much like the people during our time, we want to know what that means, right? We want to know what it looks like and specifically, when's it going to happen? When's God's kingdom going to come? When is Christ going to return? Well, that's the subject matter of today's text. Now, as I was studying it, I had the question that I wanted to answer for you. Why does a passage like this matter for us? Because we can be guilty of thinking this is dealing with all future aspects and future things, and that might not be as applicable to me, right? It's, it's not happening today. These things aren't happening right now, and there's no telling when they're going to happen. So, how does this text really influence the way I live today? Well, I don't want you to be um, misled or confused. When we talk about the future coming of the kingdom of God, we are talking about nothing less than the final salvation of the redeemed and the final judgment of the lost. Why does a passage like this matter? It matters because it's dealing with eternity and matters of heaven and hell. For some of us, the coming of God's kingdom through the Return of Christ means our salvation is fully consummated and and fully realized. And our faith is finally here at last. and, And we can see it and touch it and taste it. And we're with Christ. And for others, the return of Christ and the ushering in of the kingdom in its fullness means final, total judgment. We look at nothing less than your eternal state. And my eternal state in this passage. So what Jesus has to say about His return and about His kingdom is of the utmost importance. Again, it deals with God coming to save His own and punish those who rebel. We're going to walk through this text like we normally do. We're going to begin by looking at the overarching reality of the, the kingdom. And then I'm going to give you the point of the passage or the distinction being made right up front. And then we're going to look at four failures of people as they are unprepared for God's return and the kingdom coming. Look into verse 20 with me, with Luke chapter 17. Luke writes and reports to us, he says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And He said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. But first He must suffer many things, and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together, one will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. It's a unique and sobering text of Scripture meant to prepare the disciples for the future coming and future aspects of the kingdom of God and meant to warn them. And it's, in some regards, a heavy text for us to consider today. And yet, I think we've throughout it, will find some glorious truths and reality realities of our, our Lord and His relationship to us. Let's consider first, verse 20 and 21, the reality of the kingdom of God. We can divide this text into two dynamics, which makes it somewhat interesting to study and to read. If you look in verse 20 and 21, Jesus is talking about the kingdom in present tense. And then as he changes gears in verse 22 through the end of the text, verse 37, he's talking about the kingdom in future tense. So he begins dealing with it from the present point of view, the kingdom of God as it is Now in verse 20 and 21, and it's such an important reality for us to consider that if you get it wrong in its present context, you get it wrong in its future context. And if you get it wrong in its future context, there is nothing joyful about the kingdom's return or the kingdom's consummation. In other words, the point of the text is this. If you miss the present reality of the kingdom, you will be unprepared for the future reality of the kingdom. And that's what Jesus begins to address in verse 20 and 21. Luke reports that the Pharisees are the, um, the people of focus in these first two verses. The, these are the ones we're addressing now. Remember, since chapter 15, Jesus has been going back and forth with who He's interacting with. Luke is almost um, taken one right after the other. And we come back to addressing unbelievers, the Pharisees, the ones who didn't believe in Christ, rejected Christ, even wanted to to um, murder Jesus and ultimately will we'll push more and more and more progressively into that plan. And then in verse 22, he changes gears again and addresses his disciples. But in verse 20, we're, we're back to these unbelieving Pharisees, and they have uh, an unspecified question, but no doubt the question regards the future coming of the kingdom. Luke tells us they asked him when the kingdom of God would come. So their concern, just like people are today, of when God is going to come in and take care of all that's wrong. Right? That's, that's not surprising to us. People in Jesus' time were totally concerned with the future, right? We are human beings who can't see the future, can't read and understand the future, so we want to know all we can about it with, with as much certainty as we can about it. No doubt these Pharisees are unbelieving in Jesus, but they're curious and want to know what He has to say about the subject matter. You claim to be a prophet of God. You claim to be from God. What do you think about God's kingdom being ushered in? And Jesus is going to expose to them, you have a total wrong viewpoint of what God's kingdom is and represents and stands for and and will be like. He answers them immediately in verse 20. And he says, it's not coming in ways that can be observed. Really, he's saying it's not coming in any way that you expect it to come. And furthermore, it's not going to be anything like you think it's going to be. Whatever desires and whatever plans and expectations you have for God's kingdom, they're not going to add up. You are already starting off on the wrong foot. Most of us know, and some of us may not, but the the common desire of um, Jewish culture during this time of Christ is They were thinking and hoping for God's anointed Messiah to come as a conquering king to take the place of David, right? He's going to reign on the throne of David. He's going to be a son after the line of David. And what did David do? He established the dominance of Israel, didn't he? He conquered his enemies because God gave them into his hand. He established prosperity. There were times of of peace after he drove out all his enemies and and he reigned in, in great wealth and great respect. And it was a a great time in Israel's history, right? It's, it's the uh, golden years that they look back to. And so quite naturally, they're thinking, if there's going to come one who's anointed and a Messiah and, and a son after David and sitting on David's throne and in the lineage of David, then of course he's going to do the same thing David did and reestablish the dominance of Israel and make us glorious again and make us a powerhouse in the world and most specifically in this context, liberate us from Rome and any other enemy that might try to conquer us. I mean, let's put ourselves in their position for a moment. Because of their disobedience, they are routinely conquered by nation after nation after nation after nation. And bad things are routinely happening to their, their land and their people. And they're longing for liberation, dominance, power, respect, and that is what they think when they think about the kingdom of God. God, we are Your people. Come and establish Your glory in us today so that we can be big over the world. And You can use us in that way. And Jesus says, that's not it. It's not going to be at all what the kingdom of God is going to be like. In fact, He says, you're not even going to be able to observe it. It's coming in such a way that you're going to miss out on it. In fact, they do. Verse 21, Jesus tells them specifically, you're not going to be able to say, look, here it is, I found it, or or there, I see it. There's the Messiah coming. And then He makes the most shocking statement of the passage. Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. That's shocking on two accounts. That's shocking, one, to the Pharisees, and then it's shocking theologically from that kind of perspective. So let's talk first about the Pharisees. It's shocking to them because they're looking for the kingdom and then they have one saying it's already here. Which means, logically, you've missed it. You've longed for it. You've yearned for it. You've spent your life chasing after it. You've studied to understand the ways of God and the kingdom of God and the coming of God and the Messiah and all these things. And guess what? You got it wrong. But then it's also perhaps more shocking for what it means from a theological or divine perspective. Let's first establish what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean Jesus is not saying that the kingdom of God is here in an internal way that's a present reality within you. If you'll only just kind of search within, you can find it. It's, It's not an inward reality for you. Certainly not for the Pharisees, right? They're unbelievers. They don't have the kingdom of God in them. But, but on a larger scale, Jesus is saying it's not, not something that you can just kind of work up within you. Like you need to search in deeper and then you'll find a divine, supernatural, kingdom of God kind of power that's already pre-existent in your soul. And Unless you think that's just foolishness, that's how most people believe today. They classify themselves as Spiritual that there's something innate within me that if i meditate enough or i i just discipline myself enough i can conjure up these spiritual realities inside of my heart that are preexistent and and make life better and that's not what jesus is saying is the kingdom of god he's also not saying that it's some mystical experience or abstract concept as if he's saying the kingdom of god is is in the midst of you and You can see it in the wind and in the rain and the trees and plants and anything that's living, God is in it. and It's kind of a a new age mentality that's still prevalent today. And that's not what he's saying is the kingdom of God. And he's also not, this is an important distinction, he's also not saying the kingdom of God is attainable for you. That if you'll just search it out and look hard enough, It's in the midst of you. You can find it and then you can earn it or you can grab it and take hold of it. Nowhere does Jesus or the rest of the New Testament or Old Testament ever speak about the kingdom of God being attainable. It only speaks about the kingdom of God being a gift. None of us can attain to God's kingdom. It is always given to us from God Himself. So then what is Jesus saying? It's not this inward form of spirituality. It's not this mystical experience where God is in all things that are living. It's not in this attainable, good work kind of lifestyle. What He is saying, right into the face of these Pharisees who persecute Him and and really despise Him, He's saying the Kingdom of God is present in its King, which is ultimately the person and ministry of Jesus Christ he looks right at him and he says, you've been longing for the kingdom. You've been longing for the Son of David to come. It's in the midst of you, and you've missed it. And you know what is in the midst of you? I'm in the midst of you. I am the present reality of the kingdom of God. Jesus, when He came into this earth, ushered in and inaugurated God's kingdom today. You know how we see that, don't you? As, as we read through the Gospels, we see Jesus healing the sick and cleansing the lepers and casting out demons, and we see it in what He says and as a, in His interpretation of the of the law and, and in the Old Testament, its application to human life. We see it even in the cross, and and ultimately, where do we see it? In the resurrection, right? All of the thing, all of those things point to the fact that the kingdom of God in its glory and in its power is present in Jesus Christ. And by extension, now in His church and in the proclamation of the Gospel and the expounding of the Scriptures. And that is the hinge point of this text. If you get that wrong, you get eternity wrong. If you get the present reality of the kingdom wrong, then you will be woefully unprepared for the future consummation of the kingdom of God. That's why I say if you miss it now, you miss it later. If you're unwilling to acknowledge that the kingdom of God is present in Christ, which means Jesus is the Messiah, He is the Anointed One of God, He is the King, the Son of David. If you get that wrong, then when He returns and executes judgment, you'll be on the losing side. So the first two verses of this text are everything to this passage. And that's what he's saying to the Pharisees. You're, you're waiting, you're looking, and guess what? You've, you've missed it. You've missed it. People who are unprepared to recognize the kingdom in Jesus will be unprepared to recognize the kingdom when it comes in its fullness. And when that day comes, it will be the final day of human history. And Jesus will usher in the full force of God's power and glory. And that will not be a day of mercy anymore. That will be a day of conquer. A day of vanquishing His enemies. Look into Revelation 19. In fact, I'll just read it. Revelation 19. Let me... Let me flip over there real quick. Just bear with me. Let me show you what that day is going to be like. We can get caught up chronologically speaking, of when this actual event is going to fall in in the last times, and and that's a secondary debate to what I'm trying to trying to say to you from this passage. I'm wanting to say to you from this passage the the different kind of interaction Jesus will have than He does today. Today He issues the call for forgiveness and mercy and grace and salvation, but one day that call will cease and it will be instead like what's described in Revelation 19 verse 11. I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness... What's He do? Does He issue forgiveness and mercy? No, in that day, in righteousness, He he judges and He makes war. Verse 12, His eyes are like a flame of fire and on His head are many diadems and He has a name written that no one knows but Himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which He is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following Him on white horses. And from His mouth, what, comes invitations? No. From His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on His robe and on His thigh He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. It's a vastly different day than the day you and I live in right now where Christ is graciously and mercifully extending the offer of salvation to sinners. But one day, that age and offer of mercy will cease and the rider on the white horse will issue out judgment and make war and strike down all the enemies opposed to Him. That's what's at stake in this text. And Jesus is telling the Pharisees and us by extension, if you get the present reality of the kingdom in Jesus Christ wrong, then you will be on the side of judgment and war when the kingdom does come again in Christ. In other words, get Jesus right. Right? He's not just some guy. He's not just some Jewish carpenter. He's not just some historical figure who made an impact on his society. He's not just some Buddha-like good teacher who's got some wise things to say to help you live a better life. He is God. He is Lord. And He must be so of our hearts. And if you do, if you do not get that right, you will be woefully, woefully unprepared. So that's the dynamic being changed or, or being uh, started here in this text. And I, I think I've probably spent enough time there he changes gears in verse 22. And we can walk through this text and find four areas of failure for those who do not acknowledge Christ as the King, who do not acknowledge Christ as Lord and Savior. There are going to be four areas of failure when the kingdom of God is, I keep using this word consummated, that's the same word as being finalized or completed or fully ushered in. In verse 22 through 25, we learn that for most people, the kingdom of God will be mistaken and confusing. Mistaken and confusing. Again, if you don't get Jesus right, you get everything else wrong. By extension, you get identifying the works and words of God wrong. So, our lesson from those verses, 22 through 25, is this As Christians, do not be deceived. Because like other people, we could be susceptible to deception if we're unprepared. We must be, must be, must be biblically grounded people who know God and cling to Christ. Don't be a slave to what sounds good and right. In verse 22, he changes gears now. He's talking to the disciples who might not fully realize what the kingdom of God is, but they totally are getting who Jesus is, right? They're understanding He's the Son of God. He's divine. And In fact, when um, some of the disciples interact with one another, they say, look, we've, we've found the Messiah. So they're grasping who Jesus is. And He's going to talk to them about the future aspects of, of all of this. And He says in verse 22, "...the days are coming..." When you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they're going to say to you in verse twenty-three, Look there or look here, look here. Don't don't go out or, or follow them. He begins with a, a phrase that's somewhat difficult to interpret entirely, but essentially he's saying, There's going to be days that are coming that are not going to be pleasant days for the church. They're going to hold difficulties, hardships. It's going to be times of persecution and isolation and, and even martyrdom where you die for belonging to Christ. There are going to be days coming when you're going to be rejected socially and rejected economically and politically and on and on and on. And, and really, we know those days are here, aren't they? For the church of God. And they're only increasing. Oh, we, have a, we have a cush life here in America as it pertains to our faith in Christ. But the vast majority of our brothers and sisters around the world do not. Right now, the nation of China is doing despicable things to our brothers and sisters. China seems to go through these cycles every so many decades where they begin to permit certain aspects of Christianity. And then they get mad and they begin to attack it and right now we're in that age where they're attacking it right you can can look on any christian news source and see how many church buildings are being demolished and bibles being burned and christians being arrested making them sign documents right now renouncing their faith and this isn't future stuff this is present stuff And you may not be losing your job because you're a Christian, but some of our brothers and sisters are losing their families because they're Christians. A a new sister in Christ who just came to faith in Tennessee this last month is terrified to tell her Hindu family that she's now a Christian for what it might mean to her. And what persecution her family in India might face because she became a Christian in America. Days are coming... And days are here when, when we're going to long to be with Jesus. When we're going to want a solution to all the difficulties here in this world. When we're going to want an answer. When we're going to be really wanting to be gone, right? When we want to be taken away. Where we just want, even just as Jesus says in verse 22, we just want one day of the Son of Man. We just want one moment with Jesus. Man, I wish you he were here right now. I wish we were in heaven with Him. I wish He'd come back. That's what John means at the end of Revelation. Come quickly, Lord. Amen. This world is broken. Come quickly. We long for the coming of the Lord. Jesus is saying, there's coming a time, my disciples, my children, my followers, there's coming a time when you're going to long to see one of the days of the Son of Man And you won't won't see it. It won't be given to you. There's another time to answer why. That's my first question. Why? We're going to long to see those days. Why won't they be given? But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Suffice it to say, God will display His glory and His love to the world through our suffering and endurance. That's why we suffer and are sustained to endure. But Jesus is making the point here in verse 22 and 23 that you're going to things are going to get so bad you're going to long to be with me and in that moment you're going to be susceptible to deception you're going to be prone to chase after and grab any sort of solution you think there may be maybe social initiatives or or political agendas or or that politician or this spouse or or this new church program will will be an answer to the world's problems and and let's cling to anything we can and And he's saying things are going to be so bad and you're going to so long to be with me and so long for my return that there's going to come people in verse 23 who think they found the kingdom and you're going to be prone to believe them. And does that not depict the church today? Go into any bookstore and you will find a plethora of books written by men and women claiming to know and be a part of the second coming of Christ right now. Calendars are marked by people thinking they can predict the, the return of Jesus. Looking for numerical and, and thematic concoctions in the Bible to try, to try to figure out when Jesus is coming back. People spend their lives in that pursuit. And you know what happens? They miss out on the whole message of Scripture. And they miss out on the whole purpose of Christ coming back. And they miss out on souls going into eternal torment at that moment. Trying to to find a solution. Trying to find an answer. Searching and grasping in the air and at straws. And the Lord says plainly in verse 23, there's going to be those people who think they figured it out. He says, do not go out or follow them. Don't listen. Don't believe it. Avoid it. Reject it. Even despise it. Have nothing to do with it. Why? Because, verse 24, it will be unmistakable. We know what thunderstorms are like here in western Oklahoma. Most people in the world know what thunderstorms are like, but I don't know, I like to think ours are especially strong. And um, we've seen the lightning light up the night sky, haven't we? And just in a flash, in a sudden surprising moment, there's this blast of light and we can see across the street. Jesus is saying that's exactly what it's going to be. When the Son of Man comes back, it will be undeniable, unmistakable. The reality is this. Not everyone will belong to the kingdom of God, but everyone will know when it comes back in Christ. Everyone will realize once and for all The kingdom is present in Jesus. And they might get Him wrong in its present reality, but they will not be able to get it wrong in its future reality. That Christ is the King, and the kingdom belongs to Him. Don't go out after them. Don't listen. Don't be mistaken. Don't be confused. It will be unmistakable. I find that to be a gracious teaching of our Lord because of the plethora of theories that are out there regarding the return of Christ, our Lord is gracious to instruct us in life and say, don't be led astray. Don't get mixed up in that stuff that will distract you. You'll know when I come back. You'll know when the kingdom is being ushered in. Our Lord came in great humility through the virgin birth and living a human life, but... He will come again with unmistakable and undeniable glory such as this world has never seen before. That's one mark to prevent us from being led astray. The second mark is in verse 25. It's the only time constraint Jesus puts on His return. But first, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. I'm coming back, and it's going to be unmistakable, but first, one thing must happen, and that's the cross. And for us, that's already happened. But He ties right there, unequivocally, His suffering on the cross with His future glory and exaltation as the King. And what that tells me, and tells us, is the glorious, gracious plan of our God. He says, it's going to be unmistakable. I'm coming back. But first, I will secure redemption before I execute judgment. I'll provide a way of forgiveness before I provide a way of condemnation. I'll take care of what needs to be taken care of. And then then I'll tarry so that people may see the truth and believe. So that people may realize who I am and find faith and salvation in me. I will secure redemption before I issue condemnation. In the last days, people are going to be mistaken about God. They're going to be mistaken about the kingdom of God. What it stands for. What it looks like. How it behaves. What it represents. And they're going to be calling the church to go after it. And many churches will. Many churches and Christians are going to be susceptible and believe it. And Jesus says, don't have any part of that. Cling to Me and the redemption that I offer, and you won't miss it. Ever. Secondly, real quick, verse 26-33. through So, not only will many people mistake the kingdom of God and be confused by it, but... By connection, many people will be unprepared and distracted by life. Many people will be distracted by life. Which means our lesson is, be prepared, right? Realize that the kingdom belongs to Jesus, is coming with Jesus, and submit to Him appropriately. Have your eyes fixed firmly on eternity and your heart knit to Jesus that's your answer right are you concerned about being unprepared have your eyes fixed on eternity and your heart knit to Jesus and you'll be all right in verse 26 Jesus goes on to teach his disciples and he uh, connects back to the days of Noah And he says that's what it's going to be like when I come back. And in verse 27 he gives us a rundown of what the days of Noah were like. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. What was their problem there? They didn't listen to Noah, right? And in our day they're not going to listen to the gospel. But you know what's intriguing about that rendition of Noah's period? Jesus is not. Focusing on the sinful aspects of humanity there. Which we know was the whole reason for the flood, right? The whole world was corrupted and wicked. And God said, I I regret that I've made man. I'm going to wipe it all out. Mankind's actions in those days grieved God, the, the Scriptures say, to his heart. And yet, that's not what Jesus is focusing on here. He's focusing on the ordinary habits, even necessary habits of life. People are doing what people do. They're having a good time with one another. They're, they're barbecuing and they're, they're drinking Kool Aid and, and hanging out and they're getting married and, and having babies and growing families and getting jobs and, and living life. But they're living life unprepared. In other words, they're distracted. He gets a little bit more specific in verse 28 and 29. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating like Noah's days and drinking. And here's the more specific stuff. They're buying and selling and planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be, verse 30, on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. They're just going about normal life. Buying what they want to buy. Doing what they want to do with their money. Selling their stuff so that they can buy something else new. And, and planting huge and beautiful gardens and, and flowers and building enormous houses and buying cars. They're just getting caught up in harmless, seemingly good worldly stuff, right? Wrong. Jesus says they're distracted so that they're unprepared. You can get so involved in what are seemingly harmless and good things, that you miss out on Christ. And how many people does that describe in our context? Right? I I look down the street and see Bob. He's a good old boy. Pretty morally sound. Votes conservative. So caught up in his life, and the simple things of life, he doesn't know Jesus. And because he doesn't know Jesus, he will not be prepared when he comes back. And because he won't be prepared when he comes back, he will be rendered the judgment of God instead of the salvation of God. Yeah, it's it's harmless stuff to chase after what we want in this world, right? We buy a new pair of sneakers and, and save up for a bigger house and a nicer car and a and a better retirement and and let's just get married and have a whole bunch of babies and Get the the two dogs and the picket fence and and do all these things we want to do. You know, I'm still young, so I want to live my life. I want to travel. I want to get great grades and have good influence upon my peers and my coworkers. I want to make $400,000 a year and, and leave a legacy in this world and chase and chase and chase after all these things that are so vain and so temporary and so uncertain and miss out on the one thing we know is certain for the future. Christ coming back. That's it. That's all we know. That's all we have as a certainty for what lies ahead. And we chase things that are going to melt at His return. We chase things that moth and rust are going to destroy. We chase after things that you are, are hoarding together as priceless possessions that when you die, your kids are going to call junk and throw away. And none of that matters. It's striking to me that Jesus isn't highlighting their sinful realities because we know the sinful reality of Noah's day and we know the sinful reality of Sodom's day, but Jesus says they're even going to be distracted and caught up in good things of life. By all means, take care of your family, right? Provide for your family, love your family, care for your family. But don't let those things distract you from eternity. Don't let those things distract you from Jesus. And that's just so counterculture. The world tells you to live for whatever you want to live for and do whatever you want to do and achieve and, and go after whatever you want to go after. And Jesus says, beware. You know why He says beware? Because of what He's going to say in verse 31 and 32 and 33. It's not just that people are going to be distracted by the good things of life. In verse 31, he says, they're ultimately going to love the things of this life more than they do eternity. He says, on that day, let the ones who's on the housetop with his goods in the house not go back down and try to take them away and, and let the one who's in the field not turn back and try to go get his stuff. And then he says in verse 32, remember Lot's wife. Lot's leaving Sodom. He's just shared that example. What happened to Lot's wife? She turned back, didn't she, after the angel said, don't turn back, leave, run, sulfur and fire is going to rain down, you don't want to be here, get out of here. What's Lot's wife do? She gets to the top of the hill, she turns back and boom, pillar of salt and gone. She is the closest example of being delivered and saved and not getting there. She was that close to being delivered with her husband and her children. And you know what she did? She lusted after the life she had. She looks back. What symbolic meaning is there for us? She wanted what she was living for. She missed her stuff. One more look on my town. One more look on my my friends. One more look on the life that I had. The comfortable life that I had with my rich husband there in Sodom. Let me take one more look back so that I can know what I'm going to miss. And it's that one look back that costs you your life. People will even value their possessions more than they will their eternity. And what does Jesus say? He said it already in Luke. He says it again in verse 33 because it bears repeating, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Worldly cares will kill. Mark the words of Christ. But there's also a promise there. Whoever loses his life We'll keep it. Whoever forsakes his life for Christ in this world finds real life. It's worth repeating for the Lord two examples of people who get caught up in ordinary things. Another example of Lot's wife who misses and in Overly values the things of this world. To remind us a second time in Luke's Gospel in verse 33, the harmless cares of this world could cost you everything. The only way, according to Jesus, to be prepared for the kingdom is to cling to the King over this life, over your possessions over your goals and your dreams and your hopes and your wants. Cling to the King. The third thing real quick, and then the fourth thing even quicker. Verse 34 and 35. The third mistake or third failure that people won't realize is that proximity to, to the children of God won't count for your, your eternity. Proximity won't count. Jesus tells us what it's going to be like when He comes back and the kingdom is finally fully realized. It's going to be sharp and piercing and it's even going to split families. Which means our lesson is your faith in Christ must be personal and sincere. Verse 34, in that night, which I um, maybe, maybe stretch too much, but... I'll say it anyways. To me, it harkens back to the Passover. In that night, when the Passover is taking place, when judgment's being rendered, here again the same language is being used, in that night, there will be two in one bed, one will be taken the other left. It doesn't matter if your spouse is Christian, that doesn't make you Christian. It doesn't matter if your parents are born again, that doesn't make you born again doesn't matter if your grandchildren are born again. That doesn't make you born again. Proximity won't count. You can be sharing a bed with a child of God and on the day of Christ's return, that does nothing for you. Furthermore, verse 35, there will be two women grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. You might have good Christian friends. You might work with Christian people. You might work in a Christian organization. You might even be A sympathetic towards biblical views, and even supportive of Christian agendas, that won't count for you. That won't count. Your genealogy, your nationality, what your your ancestors have done for the faith. I've had ancestors in my lineage that have planted many churches. you think that counts for me? Not a bit. The only thing that matters is if you cling to Christ. The only thing that prepares you for eternity is Jesus. Proximity won't count. More can be said, but let's speed along. Verse 37 is the last and fourth thing. People will fail to realize that this judgment is going to be universal, it will be universal. Find it very interesting that the disciples look to Jesus in verse thirty-seven, and they don't say, "What?" Because that's what I'd be saying, "What?" Or, "Why?" Or, "How?" Help me. That's not. That's not what they say. They say, "Where? Where, Lord? Where's this stuff going to happen? Surely not in Israel, right? Surely not in Jerusalem. This is. This is the city of God, and." Surely not in America whenever that country gets established. Jesus gives this interesting analogy. He says, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. That is such common sense. (laughs) Essentially, what He's saying is, you want to know where all this judgment is going to be rendered and where the one's going to be left and the and the other taken, and, and all those kinds of things. You want to know where? Everywhere the lost is found. It's universal. It's unbiased. Just like the vultures show you where the corpse is out, the, the judgment of God is going to show you where the lost are at. Every nation, every people group, every family will face this. One will be taken, one will one will be left. No country, no city is immune. It's universal. The judgments of God are universal. The return of Christ will be rendered everywhere. Everyone will see it, everyone will know. Don't think that his judgment won't come for for you. This has been a heavy text. Just just please bear with me for a few moments. This has been a heavy text this morning. Because these four things will describe the vast majority of people and even some in the church who think their church attendance or their tithing or, or their church membership is going to save them. Proximity won't count. Who think that they're going to be immune from Christ's judgments because they're American or have Christian heritage. That judgment is for everyone, unbiased. All four of these failures are going to happen. People are going to be led astray, mistaken concerning the kingdom of God. People are going to be so distracted by ordinary things of life that they don't have eternal perspectives. They miss out on the kingdom of God. It all goes right back to understanding who the king is, the right present reality of the kingdom in verse 21 the kingdom is in the midst of you it's being offered to you through Jesus Christ and church that is the good news that in the midst of these four failures that will be common there is still a king today who so loves those who have rebelled against him that he offered himself so that they can have entrance into his kingdom You might be in one of those four categories this morning. You might have realized, actually, that's me, I'm mistaken, I'm distracted. Maybe you've realized proximity won't count, closeness won't count. The good news is, the king so loves the world he gave himself, that sinners might be forgiven and redeemed, and ushered into the kingdom. Scores of people will celebrate when Christ returns and brings to us final, complete, full salvation. And we will celebrate because our King died on the cross for us and resurrected for us. Can you name any other King who's done such a thing? No. What love does Christ display for us on the cross? What kind of King? Great and glorious. Powerful and universal. And yet, how much love He shows to you and I. O oh, Christian, be prepared for eternity by clinging to the King. Having your eyes fixed on heaven and your heart knit to Jesus. And then share the message of the King abundantly as much as possible. And maybe this morning you have realized for the first time you're the unbeliever. The King is still offering salvation. He's still extending grace. He has still secured redemption before He executes judgment. All you have to do is come. Place your faith in Him. Ask for His gracious salvation. And Peter quotes Joel 2 in Acts 2 telling us, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Our great Lord and God, we are thankful that You prepare us for what is going to happen. We're not given every detail of the future. We're not given all the specifics and the ins and outs, but we are given what we are needed. That it is a certainty. You are coming back The kingdom will be here. And You've warned us. Lord, Your warning passages are so hard to handle sometimes, and yet they're such an act of grace. You don't leave us to figure it out. You spell it out for us. Oh Lord, let us not be mistaken concerning Your kingdom and who You are, and what it means for you to return. Let us not be distracted. Let us have a real and sincere and personal faith. God, I can plead with all my heart, but if you do not move and work in hearts, it's all for naught. So we trust this passage of Scripture in its application and its clarity to our hearts, to you, and ask that you would be merciful to work it into us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.